today I've titled this sermon, The One True Gospel. Now that might sound really conceited. That might sound uh, like I think that I'm the only one that knows anything. Well, I don't know anything. Let me just say that. And by the way, I don't have any material of my own. Uh, I just go to God's word. He's got all the material. All I am is is being a messenger here. But he's going to talk to us today about the one true gospel. There is only one gospel. There is only one good news. And today, Paul is going to share that by the inspiration of God himself. We're going to see today that there is one gospel, one good news about Jesus. That's it. And how to be saved from our sins. How to have our sins taken away. There isn't a Baptist gospel. There isn't a Methodist gospel. There isn't a Lutheran gospel or a Catholic gospel. There isn't a Mormon gospel. There isn't even a non-denominational gospel. Okay? There is only one gospel biblically. And to embrace it results in eternal life. But to reject it or not embrace it, which is the same thing, it results in eternal punishment. To read this passage that we're going to look at today and believe any other gospel is to declare oneself more knowledgeable than God's word and perhaps even God himself. And I know that none of us would ever want to do that. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 30. We're going to read verses 30 through 1014. I want to review a little bit, uh, and then we're going to take it apart piece by piece and see what it is that God is trying to help us understand today through this passage. So starting in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, here's what it says. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that it is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you remember in this section, uh, the first part of chapter 9 that we looked at yesterday, uh, Paul is addressing the Jewish believers in the churches in Rome. 
This is a letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Rome. It's a circular letter. He's anticipating that it be read in one church and then it moves to another church and so on and so forth. There were no, uh, of course, uh, emails or text messages or uh, even Xerox machines back then. And so one letter that had been handwritten had to be taken from church to church. But he's addressing specifically in this section uh, the Jewish believers. In chapter 9, Paul talked about how true Jews were not those who were born Jews, but who embraced the one true God of the Jews. He was saying that nationality and religiosity don't do anything to please God. Only faith in the one true God provided salvation from their sins and those, whether born Jew or Gentile, non-Jews, who put their faith in God were the true Jews, in a sense. Now, what he was saying was, listen, he's saying, listen, guys, the Jews were given the law, the Jews are God's people, all of this, but, but listen, there are Jews that haven't accepted the Messiah. You aren't really even Jews, because you're not acting and thinking like those who were chosen by God. But there are these Gentiles who are far away from God, who are thinking and acting like true Jews. They're more Jewish than you are. Paul's just stated all of this, and I'm sure the Jews were a little frustrated that the Gentiles were somehow being saved, but not all the Jews were. And so Paul addresses this. He begins to talk about this at the end of chapter 9. Let's take a look at it very closely. And first we're going to look at Israel's lack of faith. In verses 30 through 33, let's read it again and take it apart just a little bit. Here's what he says. He says, what shall we say then? Here's the answer, folks, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul asks the question, so what what does this mean? Why are the Gentiles almost living and becoming more Jewish than the Jews? It, It means that Jews who are trying to be saved by fulfilling the law are doomed because they simply couldn't fulfill it. It just cannot be done by human beings. While Gentiles, who are not trying to pursue righteousness of their own, but accepting Christ's righteousness, were obtaining it. In fact, they were kind of tripping into it, almost falling into righteousness. Now, I talked with two people this week who claim to be followers of Jesus. They go to church. They serve the body of Christ at their church. They try to please God with their behavior and their talk. And they each said something like this to me. Man, I really hope that I'm good enough someday to go to heaven when I die. When I hear that, that is a clear red flag that a person does not understand the one true gospel. Here Paul is saying the Gentiles are practically falling down. They're tripping into righteousness even though they're not pursuing it. How's that possible? While those who are pursuing being good enough for God are far from being saved. How is that possible? Here's why that's possible. 
Because those who are trying to live good enough, those who are hoping that they're living at a level that's close enough to what Jesus did, that someday when they die, they'll go to heaven, they're going to be sorely disappointed. Because as human beings, we've been listening for eight chapters now. How Paul is saying, listen, the gospel is big. Why? Because uh, our depravity is so far over here. And God's holiness is so far over here. The gospel is what brings our depravity and God's holiness together. Because the Gentiles are saying, listen, I'm not going to pursue being righteous. I'm not going to pursue trying to gain something from God, trying to get something from God, trying to please him enough so that he'll love me. I'm just going to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can't do right. And I put my faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to save me. And they receive God's righteousness. It's, it's, it's put on them like a, a coat. See, they almost fall into right. I, I didn't, when I was 12 and I gave my life to Jesus, I wasn't pursuing righteousness. I wouldn't have even known really what that meant. But I did know, I did know that I was a sinner at 12, I did know that I did a lot of wrong and bad things and that I needed God's forgiveness. And so I put my faith and trust in him. And when I did that, I received God's righteousness to cover my life. If I would have died the very next day, God would have seen me perfect, not because of me, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Those who realize they cannot be good enough for God are close to being saved, folks. If you've been trying to somehow be good enough to go to heaven when you die, if you, if you say things like, I hope I can, I, I hope it's possible, I, I hope I, I get there, listen carefully to the rest of this message today because I'm going to share with you some hope that will change your entire life and more importantly, can change your eternity. After Paul shares with Israel their lack of faith and the fact that the reason they didn't have righteousness is because they were pursuing it in their works, Paul shares his desire for them of salvation. Paul's writing to these people who are his kinsmen. These are his friends, his neighbors, his loved ones. And he's saying things to them that are pretty bold and probably are irritating them quite highly. Look what he says in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. Paul wants his motives to be really clear here. He wants people to understand. Listen, I'm not writing this to judge them or tear them down or, or criticize them or, or tell them that all of their wishing and wanting for righteousness and striving is for nothing, but it is. I'm not wanting to hurt them. But the truth is the truth. He said, but my goal is to see that everyone who will open their heart to God and his way of salvation actually gets saved. He wanted us to know his motive. Listen, if you're here today and you get offended by the truth of this message, I want you to know that I only share it because I love you and I want you to be saved. I want you to have the forgiveness of your sins. Paul goes on and he talks about uh, being zealously religious but ignorant 
is a missed opportunity. He talks about the Jews being zealously religious. They, are, they have a lot of zeal. They have a lot of excitement. They're on fire to be religious. But they're really ignorant of who God is and what he's like. Look in verses 2 through 4. It says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, Israel's problem was not that they weren't striving hard enough. Their problem was that they were self-righteous. They were very zealous about it. They were very excited. They were very uh, committed. They were incredibly committed and, and had incredible faith to do works to please God. They were great religious people. But religion can look a lot like righteousness, but it's not the same thing. Israel did not want to cry out for mercy to God because she saw the true righteousness of God and realized as sinners they couldn't attain it. They wanted to attain righteousness by fulfilling the law with their own behavior. Do you see how this may may look on the outside similar, but they're really the opposites. One is saying, we're going to be righteous enough, we're going to do the law well enough that God will be pleased with us and we will be saved. The other says, I'm going to work hard and try to do the law and try to please God and do the best that I can. But at the end of the day, I'm going to throw my hands up and say, God, have mercy on me. I've tried. I've tried. And I just can't fulfill the law. You see, Paul says here that the more you understand God's righteousness, the more we understand our own depravity. The more you rely on your own righteousness, the more blurry God's righteousness becomes. He says they don't even see God's righteousness anymore. They don't even understand God's righteousness because they think they're righteous. You see, if we begin to think, and Paul's talked about it in other ways already, but if we begin to think, okay, I'm depraved, but I'm not really that bad. I'm better than my neighbors. I'm better than some people in my family. I'm better than even some of the people at church. I bet I'm even better than Pastor Michael. I'm a pretty good guy. And, and, and God's done a lot of good for me, but he's, he's pretty lucky to have me on his team. You see, all of a sudden, the gospel becomes very small. And we don't appreciate it for what it is. And you see, the problem with my Jewish friends is they think they're so good, they don't understand how good God is. Let me tell you something. The more I realize and admit and just accept the fact that at the core of my being, even as a Christian, my humanness flares up, and I am depraved. I am black-hearted. Yes, God's given me a new heart. It's, it's all different now, but my humanness still craves the old life. My humanness still craves to be that incredibly depraved, far-away-from-God person, and God's holiness is perfect. You see, I understand God's righteousness because I understand my own lack of righteousness. It's when we get them too close together that they begin to get blurry. And he's saying, you guys kept thinking you're so good, it's kind of getting blurry who's righteous and who's not. You're depending on your own self-righteousness. That's a recipe for disaster. At the end of this, he says, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Now, what does he mean by that? Does that mean the law is, is no good now? It doesn't mean anything? It's worthless? 
We don't have to look at it anymore. Those are not God's standards. No, of course they're God's standards. They were God's standards when he gave the law. They're God's standards now. What it means is two things. One, Jesus fulfilled the law because he perfectly lived it. He never committed a sin. He never broke a commandment. He was perfect in every single way. And so in that sense, he kind of killed the law because he fulfilled it. The other way is he took away the curse or the penalty of the law. You see, before the law just pointed out, and Paul mentioned it in chapter 6 and 7, the law just points out how bad we are. Uh, We didn't know it was wrong to covet until God told us not to covet. I didn't know it was wrong to speed until I saw the speed limit sign, right? And so the law points out our depravity. It points out our sinfulness, but it also points out that we are cursed because we can't live up to it. And what this is saying is, listen, Jesus took that away. There is no more curse because when he fulfilled the law, we get credit for fulfilling the law when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Do we perfectly execute it? No, we don't. But we still get credit for doing it. It's imputed to us because of Jesus' perfection. Listen, if you have believed that chasing religion will benefit you in God's eyes, please keep listening. Please keep listening. Because pursuing religion, pursuing uh, doing religious things, even pursuing goodness by itself will do nothing. There's something that's uh, kind of sweeping even biblical churches uh, in our country now. And it's, it's the, the pulling away of the one true gospel to let's just be followers of Jesus. Let's just do things Jesus did. If somebody's really living like Jesus, doing things like Jesus did, saying things that Jesus said, and really trying to be a reflection of Jesus in their behavior, that's really what true Christianity is. No, it's not, folks. Because the more you try in the flesh to be like Jesus, guess what you learn? I can't be like Jesus. It doesn't matter how bad I want to be a professional athlete of well, any sport except maybe bowling, I, I, I have to come to the realization that I am not cut out for that. And if I try to make an NFL team, even as a punter, the more and more and more and more that I tried, the more I would realize it ain't never going to happen, Right? And it's the same way with righteousness. When we, in our own flesh, pursue religion, even pursuing the good things that Jesus taught and did on our own, we just, it just points out that we can't do it, folks. Paul goes on to make it even worse by saying that works righteousness has and will always be left wanting. A righteousness that comes from works, doing works, has been left wanting and will always be that way. Look in verses 5 through 9. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. Paul is comparing here the false gospel of works righteousness and the true gospel of faith righteousness. Remember, Paul has just finished saying again in chapter 9 that people have always been saved by faith. Always been saved by faith. There are a lot of Christians uh, around the world that believe that in the Old Testament, people were saved by their works, and in the New Testament, people are saved by faith. But that is not true. That has never been true. It never will be true. People have always been saved by faith. In the Old Testament, there was an attempt to please God through their behavior because of their faith, not an attempt to gain God's approval through behavior. Let me just, say, let me just explain that a little bit. In other words, there's a cause and effect relationship, and it's really important to keep the horse before the cart and not get the cart before the horse. If I try to live a righteous way, and I, I try to do all these good things, and, and these religious things, and, and in the Old Testament, they were just doing these works things, and, uh, and doing that. If they were doing that in order to please God so they could get him to love them, it was all for naught. But if they had faith in the one true God... And now all of these things they did were a reflection of their true faith. In other words, I'm doing this because I have faith in God. I'm doing this because I have faith in God. I'm not doing this to get something from God. I'm doing this because I've already received something from God. Then they were saved by faith. He talked, I think in verse uh, 7 or 8, maybe first and 9, I can't remember where exactly now. But he talked about Abraham being saved by faith. He wasn't saved by his works. He was saved by his faith. And listen, the New Testament is the same. If you try to do behavior that pleases God enough to get him to love you, you will be sorely left wanting. But if you're doing good things and pleasing God and living like Jesus in, because of what he has done for you, in appreciation and gratefulness, then it's totally different. Totally different. Paul ends this section by defining the one true gospel. And I want to go back and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to read verse 9 and then slip into uh, verses 10 through 13. Okay? He says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now let's go back and talk about this for a minute because I think it's really important to not only understand what God's word says, but what it doesn't say. This is not saying that a verbal confession is a part of salvation. I know it looks like that on the, on, the, on the outset. But in the original language, it's not saying that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you do those two things, that's the, uh, in, a, in essence, that's the formula for being saved. What it's saying is you are saved by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, with your heart, you believe, 
you are saved, and then when you confess it with your mouth, that is absolute and indeed confirmation of what has already taken place. See, the confession is the, uh, 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 conf- the, confession is the proof of salvation, not part of the act of salvation. Otherwise, deaf mutes would be lost forever. I mean, just think about that. It's impossible. And there's many other places where the scripture talks about salvation, and it doesn't mention this verbal confession. Why is he mentioning it here? Because it's important for these who were born Jews, who grew up Jewish, to now not be ashamed of the gospel. Because if they were ashamed of it, then perhaps the truth is they aren't really saved. I ask adult converts to do two things. I've started doing this probably over the last two years. I ask them to do two things in Twitter who will be really excited. Because the fact is, there probably have been people who have been praying for you, who have been witnessing to you, who have talk, been talking to you about Jesus for years, and you just haven't been listening. Call them and tell them they will be really excited for you. But I want you to do one other thing. I want you to call and tell someone who will be surprised at your decision. I want them to do that to make sure that they're not ashamed of the gospel and what Jesus has done for them. Think about it. If somebody gives their life to Jesus, if somebody comes to the truth and they realize uh, that, that they are sinners, that God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life and die for them so that they can put their faith and trust in Jesus, and if you just step across this line of faith, if you just give your life to Jesus by trusting him and what he did on the cross to pay for your sins and, and trust him, you are saved. And now I do this, but I don't want to tell anybody because faith is private, right? I know some people who think that my faith is a very private thing. Well, I want to tell you something. It's a very personal thing, but it sure, has, it sure should not be a private thing. Find anybody in the New Testament who is a secret agent Christian. There just aren't any, folks. There just aren't any. Nobody keeps it secret is it, is it personal? Is it meaningful? Yes, of course. But it's not private. It's not kept secret. In fact, I would even say that if a person says, yes, I've given my life to Jesus, but I don't want to be baptized. I don't, I don't want to be in front of people. I don't, want to, I don't want to make a spectacle of myself. I don't want to testify to what God has done for me. I, I, just, want to, I just want to say, why? Is that, I mean, I understand, ladies, you're going to have wet hair and the church is going to see. I get all that part, okay? I get all that part. Get past that and say, listen, we should not be ashamed of what God has done for us. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we only see adults baptized uh, in the New Testament. There aren't any babies getting baptized because they can't testify with their mouth. They can't make a confession of their faith, which is what one of the, ways the, ba- one of the things that baptism is. Listen, if somebody is hesitant to be baptized sh- merely out of shame, we just need to talk to them more. We need to help them understand the gospel better. We, we need to help them understand what it means to really trust Jesus and what he's done for them. And then they'll be like that little boy I've seen on YouTube who the, the pastor begins to baptize him and he talks a little long and he says, just do it already! And he grabs his head and he dunks himself. You know? He gets excited. He's excited about doing what Jesus wants him to do. You know, I've been around musicians my whole life. They are a weird bunch. Uh, they just really are. Let me just tell you. They're funny creatures. One of the things that's very unusual about musicians is they all have a favorite artist. 
and some of them are just horrible. I mean, they're just, we just are quirk, we're all quirky and we like these weird people. What's funny is none of them are ashamed of who they like. They'll, they'll tell you who they like, even if they know nobody else on the planet likes them. And, and they won't even, they won't just tell you they like them. They'll try to convince you that they're good. <laughs> what a shame. What a shame if we wouldn't have that same excitement over telling people that the God of the universe loves me enough to send his son to die for me. Wow. Wow. Paul continues in this passage and says, listen, everybody has equal access to salvation through Jesus Christ. He says, whether Jew or Greek, any race, male or female, any financial status, any geographical region, any anything is what he's saying. Doesn't matter who you are. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's saying, look, guys, I know that we were Jews by birth. I know that we were God's chosen people. But it's a new day. Anybody, anybody, anybody who will call on the name of the Lord and say, God, I know that I am a sinner and I stood on the cross to save me and I put my faith and trust in that to save me. I believe that he uh, died, that he was buried, that he rose again to prove exactly who he was. And I put my faith and trust in that and that alone to forgive my sins. That is the one true gospel, folks. That is the one true gospel. There is no other gospel. There is one true gospel. And it's important that we are not ashamed of that. That we aren't ashamed enough to be baptized and tell others as a confirmation of what Christ has done in our hearts and in our lives. But while there is only one true gospel, there are true, two true responses. One is acceptance. One is acceptance of that as the truth that changes our eternity, that changes our lives. When people ask me if I believe that I'm going to heaven, I don't say, I hope so. I hope I'm being good enough because that would show I don't understand the gospel. What I say is I absolutely am, 100%, no doubt about it. In fact, I can't even change that anymore. I've been born into God's family, and I can't even be lost if I want to be. I would never want to be, but if I wanted to be, I couldn't be. Why? Not because of me. It has nothing to do with me. I am over here. I am the dirty one. But God, in his holiness, has saved me. That's why. And when I put my faith and trust in Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, my eternity was sealed, my life was changed, and nothing will ever be the same. But while that's one response to the gospel, the other response to the gospel is anything else. Yes, it includes those who say there is no God, I don't believe that God exists. I don't believe Jesus existed. I don't, all those extremes. But folks, it also includes those who say, I'm going to keep trying to do good so that I can earn God's love. 
I'm going to try to be good enough so that when I die, I will get into heaven. Folks, that's a rejection of the one true gospel. And what Paul's saying is even these Jewish friends of mine, in their zeal, in their excitement to be religious and do right things, are going to be sorely disappointed when they die. Because all of that striving for personal righteousness without the gospel, the one true gospel covering our sins is for nothing. I want to encourage you today, if you have never had the one response of accepting the one true gospel, do not leave this building before talking to someone here. If you came with a, a friend or if you're a guest today, talk to them. If you're a, a person who goes to church here, talk to one of the pastors. Talk to one of the leaders. You know who they are. Listen, folks, get this right. Listen, we can be wrong about a lot of doctrinal stuff on the peripherals. We can't be wrong about this. We cannot be wrong about this. We've got to get this right in our own lives. And so if you came in today with the thought that you're hoping to go to heaven someday, you're hoping that you can work hard enough and be good enough to someday make it to heaven. Don't leave here before you can say with absolute assurance, I know for a fact that when I die, I will go to heaven because God has saved me through his son, Jesus Christ. And when I put my faith and trust in him, it was sealed and done and nothing can change it. Do that today before you leave. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. The hope that it brings to our lives. God, we acknowledge to you that we are just filthy sinners. And even as you come into our lives and change us from the inside out, cause us to become more righteous, uh, a better reflection of you, when your spirit is in us, the reality is our humanness still springs up. Our sinfulness still breaks through. And so God, we thank you, thank you, thank you for your mercy and your grace that come through believing and trusting in what Jesus did on the cross to pay for our sins. Father, thank you that he rose three days later to prove he had victory over death, hell, and the grave. And Father, we pray that now we would live, live more like him, not in order to gain something from you, but because we've already gained everything from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.